Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you're here with us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing Good Friday. Our thoughtful guests this week are my mom, Betty Peterson, who serves at-risk babies and moms as a nurse and social worker for the Bright Start program. She comes to us from the Orthodox faith tradition and attends Transfiguration Greek Orthodox Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where she is a chanter. And Dr. Enid Legis, who is here because of the sacrifices of her enslaved ancestors and those of the Anacostan and Piscataway, on whose stolen sacred land she now lives. Enid brings more than 30 years of diversity, equity, and inclusion leadership experience to her current role as the co-chair of the Race and Social Justice Committee for the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. She facilitates workshops on anti-racism, intersectionality, and interfaith dialogue. Welcome, my relatives. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad that you're here. So what's important to keep in mind for Holy Week, specifically Good Friday this year? So when I think of Good Friday this year and the fact that I'm getting to meet your mom and that you have two moms representing, of course, I think about Jesus's mother standing there. And I'm also thinking about this journey around the labyrinth as we build becoming beloved community. I think for Lent this year, we have to keep telling the truth about the breaches in our various relationships. Hmm. We have to name them, claim them so that we can repair those breaches. Hmm. I also think COVID has taught us that self-love is really important. Some of us spend a lot of time with self uh, Mm -hmm. and not interacting with other people outside of our home space when our churches actually closed and we were on Zoom calls. So I think practicing self-love and proclaiming the dream for me means dreaming big. What do we dream for this time? Yes, we've made some progress. We have, I I won't go through and name all the progress we've made, but I just want to remind us of the importance of continuing to dream, Mm. that progress and the labyrinth and going round and round. For me, coming from an Orthodox standpoint, we use the time of Lent and preparation for Good Friday to really dig inside and look inwards and really open up to what we need to repair in ourselves. And the goal, obviously, to be come closer to Christ and in so doing come closer to each other. Mm. And like you said, love, love yourself. Once you can love yourself, you can give that love. It's just going to outpour to those around you. Lent, I'm hoping will be a time of deep reflection and also a time of hope, especially in the last couple of years. And I think this year it's just dragging on and on, you know, the COVID people are mm. getting at their wits end and so much death that I don't know if there's enough 
people that really can say, I see an end in sight, or there's hope for tomorrow, or uh, we're really going to get through this. And the more each of us can offer that to each other, the more we can uplift each other. And remember that Good Friday is good. I mean, God sent his son. He did die on the cross, but we have the good news coming. The resurrection is coming and Mm. there's hope. I feel like the more we can hold on to that and keep that in the forefront of our mind, we'll get there. We'll get to the end of our journey. I was thinking about how Good Friday remembered Jesus's death and how death has been such a part of our, everyone's life. Like I think some people could avoid it before COVID, you know, like you could sort of keep away from it, but because of, you know, I know of several family members who have died in the last couple of years, and I'm sure we've all been touched by it in one way or another. And so I think that makes it that present. And as you were talking, I was thinking about kind of this orthodox idea of that reflect inward. And um, I've often talked about it from that Lakota perspective, Hamblecha, which is kind of crying for a vision where like, I've thought of Lent that way often, where like you go sit on the hill and you're there really to commune with the creator and sort of you're crying, asking the creator, you know, for guidance and help. And it's really this time of self-reflection. What are the ways that I'm not in right relationship with myself or with creation or with each other or with the creator? And what is it going to take for me to get there? What liturgical suggestions do you have for Good Friday? So often, you know, there's like a reverencing of the cross or there's those solemn biddings and colics. Often people read the Passion. Sometimes they do it theatrically. Some people do like communion from reserved sacraments. Some don't. What kind of things are you thinking of? I'd really like to change it up. I think one of the best Good Fridays I had was when a group of clergy in my region did an outdoors Stations of the Cross Mm. downtown Mm -hmm. on the public square. I was just ecstatic like you know you're not supposed to skip between the stations but that's how excited i was about Mm. that given this time of covid i would love to see that happen again and bringing all of the different churches doing a collaborative service rather than an individual service i know so many as i just heard in our annual meeting are like oh we're going to be back in by good friday and we're excited about that for me liturgically i'd also like to bring in more of the secular world during times of silence when you asked me to do this the geek in me went and said this is about death what are the deaths in the world and And Mm. on February 8th, we had over 5.7 million worldwide deaths due to COVID-19, 5 million. Like I wrote that down and said, how are we okay with this much death? And then I think about Dean Kelly Brown Douglas in her latest book on resurrection hope says, how do you, I'm paraphrasing, How do you think about a church that has crucifixion at its center? And I thought about that. This is Holy Week because what? Oh, this is the high high time, the the most holy of holy times, at least in this faith. Hmm. I'm laity, Reverend, so. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's not a bad thing. Actually, it's a very good thing. 
I'm going to bring the secular. I, I depend on you for that theological piece. Well, lay people are very theological. Some of the best theologians I know are lay people. Leilanda Lee, I don't know if she's listening, but she's amazing. I love Leilanda's thoughts. For me, I know that every Good Friday is always the same for our church, and I love it. It's one of the most special services, you know, of the year. We do a lot of, of course, use of incense and candles, and we do the funeral hymns that are the same every year. And then we do the procession. And Mm -hmm. Friday afternoon is when we take the icon of Jesus in the laying down in the tomb and then actually physically put it inside of a wooden frame that we carry around the church in procession and sing the funeral hymns too. And to me, it's it gets very emotional. Mm-hmm. Then there's also flowers, rose petals being strewn by the myrrh bears. So we really incorporate sight, smell, sound, taste. You can almost taste the feelings that people have. Mm-hmm. It's very emotional service. I've always really appreciated that about the Orthodox, especially the procession on Good Friday. I remember that one and of course Easter. But I think the how it's become so real, like we've made it so real. And especially this Good Friday, maybe we don't have to work as hard to do that because we've all had to deal with death. But I just think that's such a powerful image of the carrying that. Well, it is an icon, but you know, it's representing Jesus in the tomb or Jesus as you're going through the funeral procession. Let's talk a little bit about the psalm. Psalm 22. This one, sometimes people will do, I've seen people do this as people are reverencing the cross, but I feel like it's very lamentful. Like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has there been a time when you've experienced that, when you sort of felt that that pain? I think there have been several times for me, especially in my teenage years, where I was just like, oh my gosh, what what is going on? Yeah, I um, I hope I don't start crying. Mm-hmm. It's okay if you do. I think the last time, of course, was the day George Floyd was killed. Mm. That was my son's birthday mm. and my new goddaughter's birth. Mm. Wow. And props to any mom that had a kid during COVID because none of us could be there. She's from Kenya and her mother couldn't be here. Oh my. So it was, it was a day that I felt forsaken. I'm like, okay, God, you and I have had some good talks up here on this Creek as I take my walks, but I was having, I won't swear. It was a WTF mm-hmm. moment of what is going on and just terrified for our country. I just felt like Mm. I've seen this before. I came into civil rights when they were crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge and my mother was like, oh, they, they, that only happens in the South. Well, hindsight, she was protecting me, not true. So I think that was the last time. And, oh no, that wasn't, insurrection was the last time I'm like, 
God what? I was a Peace Corps volunteer in a country right after the end of its military dictatorship. And I thought I was texting with that friend that day. And it's like, what is going on from your end in Washington? So as a retired teacher, I'm like, what what are we supposed to learn? What am I supposed to take away from this to help people talk about it and not want to repeat this? Hmm. For me, there is one time that I feel I totally was afraid, like literally afraid I had lost my connection to God. And I feel like, you know, we go through a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, but he's always been there, always comforting. I never felt away from him. But this is a very personal thing in my own life after a divorce from a long-time marriage and two daughters that weren't communicating with me for a few years. I kind of lost who I was, and I remember just feeling not like Job, but in that spot where everything was dark and being so afraid that I lost my connection to my Lord and God and just communicating with him. So when I read Psalm 22, I really hang on to the parts, you know, where he's talking about how God is always there and the faith in the midst of adversity, no matter what, never losing hope, those kind of things. I feel like when that point in time hit me, basically really on my knees in the dark, cried out, please, God, come back. Don't lose me. (laughs) Um, Don't let me lose you. And he did. And I feel like this psalm is expressing that he wants everybody to know the pain he's going through, the adversity, the challenges, how people are treating him. And then he still talks about how good God is, how wonderful, and and he's always there for him. So I love this psalm. One of those things that I noticed about in reading it was the transition from this deep lament on then to this place of like vindication or hope at the end, where it's sort of like, we all should turn to the Lord. The Lord will have these saving deeds that come. Where do you see hope or vindication in the pain or sorrow that we're experiencing now? What do they say? Weeping may last the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Mm -hmm. I remember growing up hearing my mother sing that all the time. I take joy in where we are now. I mean, I, I literally take joy in the fact that we have vaccines, we have masks, we have soap, we have clean running water. For right now, we have the ability to vote. I mean, I, I look at all the things at what we have and reminded to not take those things for granted. With Good Friday, it feels like I'm constantly asking myself, what's our cross to bear? Hmm. What cross are we carrying? And how do we help each other carry that burden? Mm-hmm. You know, so I think of Simon and ask myself, who are the Simons out here? Certainly all frontline workers, grocery store workers, as well as healthcare workers. Your mom is one of the Simons out here on helping women realize this life. 
that they've been carrying? That's a really good question. I think you are reminding me of the importance of acknowledging the suffering and reading this psalm and say, where's the hope? God, just a reminder, I'm still here. Absolutely. I really hear hope or see hope around us and all of the pain. I think it was Mr. Rogers. He said, you know, when these bad things happen, his mom would tell him, look for the helpers. You'll always find hope in the helpers. And I can see, you know, there's so many things that have been created as a result. You know, we have, like you said, the vaccines. I've seen small little churches with, you know, a handful of people do these amazing things like make lunches for people who would otherwise go hungry. And grandmas sewing on their sewing machine masks for healthcare workers. And you see these moments of the Simons, just like you said. I also see that we've been, we've started a conversation throughout many different churches about the racism that exists in our churches and the role that our churches have played in that racism and racist things that have happened. If we're looking at where's the hope in this psalm, it stands out to me when he says, be not far away, O Lord, you are my strength, hasten to help me. And then down a little bit further, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And yet the congregation may not be faithful believers. It could be the people that are scorning him and, you know, calling him names. And we have to think about that no matter where we are to declare the name of God. He says he does not despise or abhor the poor in their poverty, neither does he hide his face from them. But when they cry to him, he hears them. Now, mm-hmm. to me, that is hope. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, you don't have to worry because God is not going to turn his face from you. You just cry to him and he will hear you. And I also feel like at the end of that psalm, he's kind of committing not only himself to God, but he's committing his family or or everyone. I don't know exactly how to put it, but I feel like it's a bigger commitment than just himself. Hmm. Maybe that's hope. Maybe we commit everyone in hope. You know, that makes me think about ecumenical work I've done here. I live in one of the most diverse counties in the nation, certainly in our state, and visiting with others, other places of worship pre-COVID, and having reconciliation-type conversations has been really, really helpful in getting through this pandemic and knowing what other faith communities, non-Christian communities, are up against. And that gives me hope. It reframes the question for me from do you, not do you believe in Christ, do you believe in a higher power? Hmm. And the name you choose is the name you choose. My hope is that if you believe in a higher power, then you have a reverence for this earth, that we share air. COVID has has told us We share the air, (laughs) y'all. Respiratory drops don't know boundaries. Mm -hmm. All of our intersections and reasons for disliking each other, 
indiscriminately. <laughs> it will come for you. So being able to have reverence for the earth and for each other gives me hope. I think about that um, because the church is also, at least here in my diocese, reminding us about creation care. Mm -hmm. And my indigenous siblings remind us, you know, y'all could have learned something. You still can. And Betty, you, you wouldn't know this, but last night Shaniqua explained to the class that I was in, he was the keynote facilitator about creation and creation care and how the community cares for one another and what makes for a whole community. That was very helpful at this time of year, thinking about what makes for a whole community. Beloved community, yes, I'm working on the Christian side, and I want to know how the other sides are going to be part of this because our community shares the earth. Hmm. Very true. So let's shift to the gospel because there is there is a lot of gospel there. Um, <laughs> What stands out for you or what sort of hits you the most as you were reading the gospel? <laughs> Where do we start? When I think about this question, I, I'm going to be very secular, you all. And I, <laughs> I have this image of Judas, like arriving in the, the Olive Garden. And, and I'm picturing this arriving at the, the street corner or in the hood or where brown and black people live and bringing other brown and black people who are officers of the state. I mean, Judas arrives with this squad of Jewish police and these police are sanctioned by the chief priest and the mm. state. And there's a saying in the black community, you probably heard it when I was reporting out last night, Shaniqua, that all skin folk aren't kin folk. And what I mean mm. by that, Betty, is just because people are brown and black like me, or may have nappy hair or pick any characteristic and look like me, doesn't mean they're kin, that we have a common mind. We just share that particular characteristic. And so for me, in this racial reconciliation work, the church and the state have sanctioned white supremacists. Mm. And I can't help but think of Charlottesville and mm. because I'm a retired faculty and so loved walking around campus and, you know, I'm watching these people dressed in shorts and shirts and giving the sea keel and I might've said that wrong or stepping to it and wearing swastikas and I'm thinking, excuse me, you know, whether that kind of behavior is arriving like in Jesus's time with Judas arriving at the Olive Garden or these people walking around campus or just thinking here in DC and what happened in terms of protests when Black Lives Matter Plaza came into being, it just, it's just like, okay, they're coming for you. Hmm. That's sometimes my lament. I'm like, oh my God, are they coming for all of us? Because some of us can't hide. 
-hmm. We have characteristics that don't allow us to hide. And Jesus stands up and says, here I am. And I can just imagine community members standing up. I think of all the community members that have stood up and said, here I am. You looking for me? I've been telling the truth. Mm. And then Pilate says, well, what is the truth? And I'll stop there because for me, when I talk about truth telling, I realize that not all truths are the same. Hmm. This gospel is long and very, very well known. I mean, mm -hmm. you could almost give it verbatim, even if you're a layperson or a child, maybe even. And there's so much in it that a person could pick out. To, to say, oh, this stands out for me. And uh, right now, what I'm going to focus on is something that comes also from the last Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 and 5, 7 to 9, probably the 5, 7 to 9, because it talks about obedience and being tested. And to me, what stands out in this gospel is the obedience that Jesus has to his father and that he knows his father could save him from death, but he is submitting himself to this. He knows that through obedience and what he suffers, things can be made perfect. We have a source of eternal salvation that way to all who obey him. So for me, being able to go through the whole process that the gospel talks about comes from Jesus's obedience and then what he's trying to also show us and teach us is through obedience, regardless of your suffering, you can come through salvation and the resurrection and the life eternal. But there needs to be obedience, too, in this life. Then one other thing I want to share, I don't think it's in this gospel, but it's something that we talk about, and it just came up recently, when we think about people that are less than or somebody who's done something wrong and think about Judas or, you know, that's who I'm thinking of right now, and that's what we were talking about in church recently, is God said, or Jesus said, what is that to you? If I forgive him, if I let him go, what is that to you? I really, I think, appreciate that so much because Jesus just tells his disciples, what is it to you? Whether I let him go, whether I punish him, you know, that uh, that's nothing on you. And I feel like we need to think about that because I think our our whole world is too quick to judge and not quick enough to think about how we would measure up if someone else was looking at us. Hmm. I'm wondering about this obedience question. And I've always, I think one of the challenges, I think what is I'm hearing it, and so I'm going to push back on you a little bit, but I do agree that we need to be obedient to God. I, sometimes I feel like those obedience statements were often used to sort of 
push certain communities into submission. As an excuse, for example, when people are like, well, why did George Floyd get murdered? Well, he just needed to listen to the police. If he was just obedient, that wouldn't have happened. Or if this happened, you know, that's kind of what I'm hearing. And not that's not what I'm hearing you say, but that's kind of what I've heard people say. And I'm wondering also thinking about our churches, they haven't always been obedient to the call that Christ called us to be, that loving your neighbor, they've been obedient to the empire, right? They've been obedient to Rome or they've been obedient to power and empire, but they haven't been obedient to where we're really called to be, the obedience we have to love or the obedience we have to... Um, anyways, I am just guess I'm thinking about that. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? So you stole my line. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Because that obedience thing, given the intersections where I live, it has been a means of control. And it doesn't matter if you're obedient. And I think of it when my son was learning to drive, and you've heard about the video that often we as Black parents mm -hmm. tell our youngsters about, put your hands on the wheel and yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, or maybe not even look them in the eye, tell them you're getting ready to move your hand. And so Kelly Brown Douglas is one of the, the theologians, Betty, in our church, and she has a book. She often writes about the ability to be able to speak out, but she writes in her books because her son asks her questions, and he talks about Philando Castile hmm. as not being able, it didn't serve him to be obedient to the police. This man in Minnesota had his child in the back seat, his girlfriend sitting next to him, and you see on the video he is obeying, but it wasn't enough. That obedience piece, you know, the whole wives obey your husbands, slaves obey your masters, and it just, yeah, it was who was going to be, are you going to be obedient to Caesar? Or are you going to be obedient to God? I mean, it just, I'm struggling with that word. I struggle with the idea of obedience. Hmm. I wasn't thinking at all along the lines that either of the two of you were. <laughs> to me, it's not about obedient to each other. It's not about being obedient to your spouse or being obedient to the government. To me, what he's talking about and how I feel I'm learning it is strictly you personally and your obedience to the Father in heaven. If you're talking about the case of George Floyd, it would be the police officer that isn't being obedient to his Father in heaven as to how he treats another human being. Hmm. When we're obedient to our Father in heaven, then we are trying to be like him. We're trying to follow his commandments, his guidance, his example. And if we, each one of us, were to try to do that, I think we wouldn't have a problem with the word obedience to each other in the world because it would be a given that we would be trying to be doing what our father wants us to do. Hmm. What I'm thinking about too is kind of Jesus throughout his ministry, right? He often flipped things on their head, 
right? So he was like, if you look at all of that, he sort of shifted. And I think what's happened is those in power use that word obedience to control those underneath them. And if they had actually followed sort of Christ's example, they would flip themselves because remember the last must become first and so forth. And they would have thought about that differently, but instead they chose that easy route and, and thought of it that way. What do you think? I've often wondered this sort of on whose shoulders does Jesus' death fall? Like, is it Judas? Mm. Is it Pilate? Is it the crowd? Is it Rome? Is it Jesus? Is it God? Like, is it all of them? I've always wondered that. And I think Judas sometimes gets a bad rap. I mean, obviously he did something, you know, like sold out his friend and, and Jesus. But in some ways, you know, every time we don't honor our neighbor, we're selling out Jesus too, right? And Peter, who denied Jesus, sells out Jesus too. But I feel like in our creed, it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. So I feel like we're sort of saying it's Pilate's fault that Jesus died. But where do you think it falls? This is a fun question because I never really thought about this before at all. I think you, you're right, Shaniqua, that Judas gets the bum rap. We betray our family members, we betray our friends, we betray our neighbors, okay? Mm. I believe that Pontius Pilate, you know, he struggled. He wanted to give them the man that, you know, could be let go. So to me, the blame, if I'm going to put blame on somebody, I feel like it is those people that went around in the crowd and paid them to say, you know, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus, mm. you know, those people that are unnamed, that are working in and amongst all of us right now. It's it's mm. not one one big person. It's all these little things that are insidious that come into our our lives and get us to do things and say things and act ways that are not Christian, not what we were given at birth. Hmm. I am a proponent of more than one, of both and, mm -hmm. and I will not shame nor blame just one person. Mm. I think it's really important, and this has just come through the um, Anglican social justice work that I've been that I've been taking. But I think they are all to blame, and I understand how scary it was to stand up and speak out, if you will. Mm -hmm. As a side note, Betty, in doing uh, racial reconciliation work, we have this notion of the four different levels. And so we talk, and I've been using it as a means of both strategizing and analyzing. So if we look internally, I hear that struggle like, if I stand up, I'm going to lose my job. And mm. as someone who almost lost her job over her hair, that's another story, not today's podcast. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, that whole notion of wanting to stand up and be totally who you are. And then between individuals, well, if Peter, did Peter talk to Judas? We don't really know. But, you know, they both in many ways, betrayed him. And we know that the empire, the power, the policies, the practices, if you were talking against Caesar, excuse me, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> if we looked at all of the, and I don't know that period of history, I only know the little bit that I've read. Structurally, that's just the way society was set up at that time. So those four different ways is how I arrived at all of them. Hmm. 
I ask myself, whose side would I have been on? And I would have, I feel very strongly on the side of, of the crucified, not the one that's yelling, crucify him. And I also know that there is a price to pay for speaking truth to mm -hmm. power. Hence mm -hmm. why Jesus is hanging there. As Reverend Otis Moss tells us, he's hanging there between two thugs. Hello, let's break this down for people in the community. And he doesn't ask to be saved. He's like, okay, take my last breath here. I can see it's, it is everyone. And yet, for some reason, the crowd had the opportunity. I mean, everybody along the way had the opportunity to stop it. But in the end, the crowd could have said, you know, give us Jesus and let him go free. You know, like each individual person has the opportunity to stand up and speak out. And they will be, you know, isolate themselves and pay the consequence. But the crowd, that mob speak, I think is so powerful. Mm. And, you know, this would be a question like you started in it is, where would I be in this? Which place would I take? And honestly, thinking about me, I don't think I would be any person in power and I don't think I would be a disciple. I mean, I feel like I would be one of those people in the crowd. I think I would be very, very frustrated because you may want to do something, but you got this crowd around you and the mob who's saying, you know, crucify him, crucify him. Even if inside you want to say, no, give me Jesus. Again, I feel like in the world we live in, it's hard to make a difference in a big way, but we all have to try. I mean, what if there were a few more people that just shouted out louder in that crowd? You're on to something, Betty, about that mob speak. As someone who lived through the riots of the 60s in Chicago, who saw her hometown of Cleveland, Ohio, and Huff burning, coming home from college, who watched Chicago burn too. There is something about being in the mob and trying to get out of it. And it has stayed with me that when I think of protests, even when the Women's March was here in DC, after the previous president was chosen, I find myself always looking for where are the exits. Because you can literally when you're my size, I may have a big voice, but I'm not a big person. So I got a lot of mouth, but if that crowd physically is moving you, you can't get out. Whether mm. you're saying something or not, their voices are drowning you out. So yes, you are right on point. I've preached on this actually, like on the crowd, this aspect of the bystander. And they think that that's why so many, like for example, sexual assaults happen is because people see like, for example, the person taking the obviously intoxicated, cannot give consent woman up to a room and nobody stops him. Like nobody, they see it and they don't do anything. And I think that's kind of, or, you know, with, if you look at George Floyd, for example, there were several people who tried to step forward and say, hey, did you check his pulse? Hey, I don't think he's breathing. Hey, he's not resisting anymore. And they just didn't let that happen. And you know, we might like to think that, I used to think that, I was mean, like, I would have stepped forward and saved Jesus, but who knows, you know, and how many times have I, when people were bullying people in school, I was quiet because I knew if I spoke out, I'd be the next one to get bullied probably, you know, and how many times do we do that as adults? And, you know, obviously it might look a little different, but um, thinking about that. 
I always think it's interesting because it was organized religion. And I know we have to be careful when we talk about this story. So we're not sort of becoming anti-Semitic, you know, because they always say like the Jews. It wasn't the Jews now who killed Jesus, right? It was the organized religion. So in no way, like I always have to remind everybody of that. But it was organized religion who was threatened by Jesus and plotted against him. Who do you think is the church of today threatened by? Part of me thinks like in some of our churches, I won't mention one specifically, but I think there's been a lot of like sexual abuse scandals and, you know, they're threatened by the people who've come forward and said, hey, I've been abused by this church. Or if we talk about, I don't like, I'm trying to think of other things or maybe just people who speak out about the things that are wrong with our church, like the racism we see in the church, or maybe it's women who speak out about the experience they had of sexism. That's a tough question because my gut response is to say the church feels threatened by those of us moving the margins to the center. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Those of us who are working in the racial reconciliation areas, because in our church, that's indigenous, Asian, Black, Latinx, the ethnic ministries. For those of us that cut across, that have more than one of those categories, that's a problem. So as someone who is pushing the church to do both and and understand this word intersectionality and stop making us choose whether I want to be Black today, lesbian tomorrow, a mother on Sunday. I mean, just I'm bringing all of me. Deal. The other thing that I think the church is afraid of is the poor, because a church that looks like Jesus, when I read Jesus's ministry, I see someone who's going down to the river and talking to the people who are bringing in the morning fish mm -hmm. and, you know, saying, walk with me. At the same time, telling the tax collectors who were just as disliked, oh, I'm staying at your place tonight. I'm thinking of someone who, when a jar breaks, it has this rich oil in it. And Jesus is like, brothers, just hold up. She is the one that's anointing me. Why are you giving her grief? Because she actually gets it. I think about the poor people's campaign. Hmm. And the thing I admire about that, yes, I know I'm in the class and Reverend Liz Theo Harris is one of the teachers who's one of the co-chairs with Reverend Barber, okay? Full disclosure. <laughs> However, that notion of having people do theology from where they stand and what they are actually seeing and reinterpreting the Bible for today, looking at its historical significance, and saying, and today we see that same practice and there are other practices we can do. Now, I realize it. Reverend, you got to get paid. I understand that. So if you have a church of poor people, how y'all going to get paid? <laughs> you didn't decide to be a monk. You decided to be clergy. <laughs> so, you know, I understand that real side of my son is an opera singer and one of the board members was saying to us, how you have to keep the traditional people who have enjoyed that. So you got to keep the traditional people of the church who are, you know, putting away some sizable chunks of change there. And you want to bring in new people and the new people may not be churched or schooled or have all those traditional characteristics. 
which make them members. I mean, we, we're one of the things COVID taught us is like, so if we're looking at average Sunday attendance, which I liken to education, we need butts and seats to know how many students we have in the class. COVID didn't really allow us to do that because mm-hmm. when you're on Zoom, yeah. I often get on on YouTube so I can show it in the living room and that doesn't show up as part of average Sunday attendance. So yeah, what we call church now to look like Jesus, I think is going to be extremely or is extremely challenging because we have to seriously ask that question. What am I willing to give up? Mm-hmm. I definitely think folks in the margins coming in, I know as we've been talking about beloved community, some of the folks from our church have said things. I've, I've heard a couple of people say things like, this isn't my church anymore. I mean, and I'm like, what is your church then? Is it the church of only white people or is it the church of only the wealthy? I know that people used to say that a lot about Episcopalians, but I grew up in South Dakota where the majority of Episcopalians in South Dakota are brown people, are Native American. Mm-hmm. We're one of the few dioceses like that. And so for us, that's always, you know, we're all poor. We have churches that don't even have running water, that don't even have bathrooms. They have outhouses. <laughs> that's how like old school and broke we are. Well, I think that not only those in power, but anybody in the church, then organized religion, I feel like it is every unique person in and of themselves, who are they threatened by? Because mm. that is who in the end is going to, it's just going to grow out from each person. If one person is threatened by another's sexual identity or another's skin color or another's financial situation, then that's just the ripple effect. It's going to come through in all the different communities. And so you're going to have threats in many, many different ways. Mm -hmm. So Betty, is your denomination trying to grow? Yeah. We're not like out on the streets beating the, you know, it's, (laughs) uh, it's really people who are searching for something more and they come and they find out about us. I don't know how, which, but however God, you know, allows them to find out about us and then they question it and they come and they sit in on a service, talk to Father Peter now as our, our priest, the other people in the church welcoming them. And then they just decide they're interested. They want to learn more. They start learning more. And then if they decide to join, they join. Mm-hmm. One thing that I will say that I've noticed, and I've seen this in not just the Orthodox Church, but other churches is it really comes down to the relationship. Like I just remember these different things and the stories you've told me, like there's a woman at mom's church and her neighbor across the street, she found out that their daughter didn't have a bed. She went over to her house grabbed her own bed. This is like a 70 year old lady carried the bed across the street and gave it to the neighbors and was like, I don't want to hear about your daughter not having a bed no more. (laughs) Somebody once told me that, you know, we can't have Easter. We can't have this resurrection if we don't have Good Friday, right? And I think some churches like to live in the Easter portion all the time. They're like, yes, victory, blah, blah, blah. And other, you know, for other of us, I think a lot of times oppressed folks, we kind of live in the Good Friday portion of like, we identify heavily with that Jesus's suffering. What do you think we could learn from each other? Those of us, what could we who identify heavily with the Good Friday could we learn from the Easter Sunday? And what do you think Easter Sunday folks could learn from the Good Friday folks? I can learn from the Easter Sunday folks to 
operate more from a there's enough mindset rather mm -hmm. than a scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. And I feel the Easter Sunday folks could learn from the crucified that it's not a zero sum game mm. and to be humble and to pray for all for the good of all that that we are all related the importance of us talking to each other mm -hmm. stating where we are now and all of us moving forward yes got us to this point and that means we can't go back we want to leave some some things behind but we don't it feels like the current political climate where okay, I'm going to own this. If you're going to put kids in cages, no, I don't want to talk to you. Hmm. I would say the Good Friday people could gain a lot and benefit from the resurrectional, the eternity, the joy to come, the, you know, what is there for all of us. And, and they can look at that and and help them be motivated to work hard towards towards their connection and closeness to God. And the and the resurrection people or the, you know, they the ones who are always, you know, happy happy happy, they also could learn from the good friday thinking people because the world is suffering. It is in pain. There's so many people struggling in every, every walk of life, every way, rich, poor, no matter what, everybody's going to have struggles. And the more that they can embrace that and look for that in their fellow men, then they can help lift them up. Hmm. And at some point, they can be um, reconciled. Yeah, come together. That's really helpful, Betty. And it makes me remember the importance of like, there's a term we use called creating brave spaces. And it doesn't mean that what we say won't, we're not speaking, it, our intent is not to hurt the other person. It's to help us find a common ground. Hmm. So like giving the bed, I might say, so what do we need what policies do we need in place so that that person can have at least a bed? Mm -hmm. I think of my work in Peace Corps where people were putting in water systems and then I'm hearing you and I'm thinking, why is that? Do people want running water? So I think when I hear you say that about reconciliation, you, you can't start at reconciliation. I think you have to have those difficult conversations and listen. And that's what I'm hearing both of us say of the importance of listening and saying, okay, so we can agree that your child needs a bed and let's talk about what are some other needs that we as a community might supply. Hmm. I think it all comes down to how are we in relationship with one another? One of the things that I, like, as I was thinking about that, one of the things I know that as like Lakota people, we do death really well. That's one of those rare times where everybody comes together for the funeral. There's food. It's, it's weird because it's this weird way that nothing can bring a family together like a death. And there's like three days of mourning. It's, it's intense, but I feel like that's one of the gifts that we have as 
that Good Friday thing. And I think sometimes what I've struggled with with the Easter one is the sterility of the death that they see, you know, and maybe they could, you know, like how they kind of, I remember going to, you know, I'm half white and half native going to my white grandma's funeral and like they said the prayers and the casket was on the thing and everybody just turned around and walked away. And that was what I kind of lost it. And I started bawling. And I don't remember, I wasn't my mom. I could start bawling on somebody. I think I thought it was my aunt, but I think it was just some random lady or something. But anyway, but it was because I was like, why aren't we staying there? Like in Lakota culture, we stay and they lower the casket and we all have to shovel the dirt on ourselves. It's not this very sterile with the pretend green grass or anything. I think the thing that maybe we could learn is sometimes there's times where we have to let go. In all of our pain, we have to let go and actually find joy. You know, like we can't always just be sad. Like there has to be a time you have to make space. Even if you're in the worst situation, you have to make space and let go. And that's why I think sometimes I remember following a priest and somebody was asking for money panhandling on the side of the street and the priest whipped out and gave him some cash. And I remember the other priest was like, why are you doing that? He's just going to spend it on booze. And the priest was like, you know, if I had to sit in 20 degree weather and I was sitting, he's like, I'd want booze too. And (laughs) I was like, we have to find time to celebrate. Like that would be like, maybe that's probably a really bad example, but you know, that's kind of what I was thinking about. As we wrap up, I just want to close by asking like, what tips do you have for maybe, and I realize maybe you're not preachers, but what tips do you have for preaching this or preaching, you know, Good Friday, or what things as a listener would you want to hear about this? Or what questions do you have that you'd want answered? I really appreciate when the pastor or the priest can point out something new or focus on something from a different perspective, like talk about to the people which one are you? Where do you feel like you would fit in? Are you the Pontius Pilate? Are you the Judas? Are you the Peter? Are you? It kind of takes you a little bit further than just reading and knowing the facts here, but it helps you kind of think and put yourself in that place. That's something that I appreciate. Hmm. What do I want to hear? Hmm. I'm an eight o'clocker, so I always loved Easter sunrise (laughs) service. I love watching the sun come up. Um, That was part of my non-Episcopalian nor Methodist spiritual training, but that's another story. I think what I want to hear is what do we need to let go of? How do we focus on what we're letting go of and how we're moving forward? I mean, I really even though Isaiah was, you know, just as hard as John for me, I just, what stood out for me was that notion that he was oppressed and he was afflicted and he didn't open his mouth. Hmm. And by a perversion of justice, he was taken away. And that whole idea of who can imagine our future? Three years ago, this was not the future. I don't think we were we mm. were imagining. Right. I'd like to hear about more than that kind of suffering servant. I'd like that sense of of joy, of acknowledging and naming, and the joy of of the relationship of being together, whether it's through technology, even just in thought. You know, when that that whole notion that I'm with you in spirit. I would just like to see the connecting the dots of this time, of this crucified time and 
all the crucified bodies that we live with mm. as also being held up and where the joy is in, in moving forward and, and what that might look like. I, I'd like to hear a dream. Mm. Here's what I'm dreaming. You couldn't put that any better, Enid. That, to me, I would love that. I would love to hear that. That really spoke to me. Enid, I think you might need to preach on Good Friday. <laughs> <laughs> You want you can come to South Dakota. You could preach uh, Good Friday. I was thinking about the things that I sort of think about. One is, you know, we could talk about death a little bit, just like how it's become so sterile and what would it be like for us to be more intimately involved in death, like how they brought aloes and myrrhs and all that. The other thing I was thinking about was like what has been laid to rest that we hope will be resurrected, or what needs to be laid to rest. Maybe be another question just for people to think about and answer. But I often, I often want it to be brought present, just like you said, like the cracking open of the gospel and making it real so it's relevant for me now. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you for being willing to share your wisdom. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you. There's just something for me. I just cannot tell you how happy my heart is to be with another son. And even though I have not met you physically, I feel like spiritually you enrich my life through your words and sharing your teachings. Betty, thank you for everything that you do. When you retire, you don't have to give it up. You will just do it in a new way. So thank you both. It has really been my pleasure. I've never been to South Dakota, so I think I have to put that. I went to the Grand Canyon because I've never been there. I think I got another trip west coming. Mm -hmm. I think I do. Well, if you need a place to stay, Enid, you're welcome at my home because I have enjoyed this time with you. And I really think you're very wise and perceptive. Thank you for letting us be on. Hello, podcasters. This is Reverend Shaniqua with a note about today's show. In our culture and in my family, we work on using the right pronouns for folks. Sometimes it doesn't come out that way. Like on today's show, when our guests use different pronouns for me. I know that they meant no disrespect. I thank them for being willing to be guests, and I hold up God's grace for all of us as we move towards seeing others as God sees us. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Betty and Enid. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you heard something that moved you, Please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.edu ec slash love always.